Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today we're sharing part four of our series, 1A USA, Conversations on the First Amendment's Past, Present, and Future from the National Conference on the First Amendment held at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. This episode explores the crucial role of the free press in America and the challenges that journalists and editors face today. The first panel is moderated by NCC President Jeff Rosen and features Nancy Gibbs, Harvard professor and former managing editor at Time Magazine, Liza Donnelly, a cartoonist for The New Yorker, Luis Fabregas, the editor of the Tribune Review in Pittsburgh, and Tony Norman, a columnist at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. The second panel features executive editors of the nation's leading news organizations, Dean Piquet of the New York Times, Marty Barron of the Washington Post, and David Shribman, then of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Finally, you'll hear from founder and CEO of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, and CNN reporter Selena Zito. Here's Jeff to get us started. Thank you so much. Fake news, political correctness, and the editorial function. What a subject, and I am, think that our mission is to identify the question of whether students and citizens are self-censoring and whether they are isolating themselves into filter bubbles and echo chambers, and what, if anything, the media organizations all of you work for can do about it. Nancy, you're teaching at Harvard now. You see the way the students are having discussions. Are they self-censoring and engaging in polarized behavior, and why would that be? Um, the self-censoring is a, is a concern to any of us who are educators or who are parents or even in our own conversations about whether we feel that the, the, really, the richness and the learning that comes from a serious engagement with ideas is being somehow diluted or limited because of people's caution about offending someone. I, I actually think that being cautious about offending people is, is a good thing. Calling it political correctness um, already sort of stacks the deck that this is, this is a negative. And obviously during the campaign, it was much cited as, as this very negative trend. You can also look at it as, um, a sensitivity and an instinct to courtesy and an awareness that people are going to bring different experiences and points of view to the conversation. Having said that, you hope that, the, that conversations, whether it's between students or with faculty or the people that you encounter in the coffee shop or the pickup line, are, are willing to really engage with ideas without having to hold back and, and run everything that they want to say through a filter that prevents them from from learning from each other. And so I do think that we are trying to walk a line that has respect as a foundation and courtesy and civility as a foundation of our conversations with each other. And yet there is a fearlessness and a creativity and an energy with which we are looking to learn from each other and provoke each other and stimulate each other and invite each other to think in new ways. And that I think is the tension that we are all, all experiencing in different ways. That is a great way to put it, the balance between the need for civility and respect for different points of view and a willingness to listen to them is one of our central challenges. Liza, you're a great cartoonist to celebrate the First Amendment. You wrote this really inspiring cartoon of the Statue of Liberty as well as of the First Amendment as a pair of wings, which was just so beautiful. 
Uh, cartoons have inspired terrorism and death, as we know from Charlie Hebdo and from the uh, response to blasphemy. And yet, your cartoons and the cartoons in the New Yorker seem to engage in satire and civility at the same time. So how do you see your function as a cartoonist in addressing the line that Nancy identified? Well, I agree with Nancy that uh, you know we, we have the First Amendment and we should be able to say or, or draw whatever we want in this country. But as journalists or as, as opinion journalists, which is what I consider myself to be, we have a responsibility to be careful um, as to what what we might perceive might happen if we drew something a certain way. That said, my colleagues, are, I support them wholeheartedly to, do, to draw what they want. Um, my job as a cartoonist is not only to make people smile, but also I, I'm an individual that I try to make people, I'm like a, I feel like I'm a, um, a catalyst or a um, spark plug to make people think. So a lot of my cartoons, not only are in The New Yorker, but I publish on Medium, and I publish my political cartoons there primarily. And, and I share them on Twitter and on Instagram all the time. So I'm, what, my stuff is what's known as a thumb stopper. So people are scrolling through, and they'll stop, and they'll see this colorful, bold drawing, and they'll stop and look at it. So my hope is that I'm able to cross boundaries Cross, go across uh, these these pockets of people that um, that are that are thinking alike. Maybe I can speak to other people. And my my stuff is kind of quiet for cartoonists. I'm not the kind of cartoonist that that uh, hits people over the head with my thoughts. I invite them in to think about what I'm thinking or what I'm seeing and have a dialogue. Cartoons are dialogue in my eyes. That's a really powerful idea. And there's something about a whimsical cartoon that can appeal to both sides and inspire dialogue and opinion in a way that's less polarizing than uh, the Twitter sphere. Louise, you wrote a really moving column where you said this is the last print edition of the Pittsburgh Tribune. Last edition, you're now presiding over this flourishing digital uh, version of it. What's the difference between the digital and print version in, in the way people react and all the stuff we've been talking about in terms of polarization, anonymous comment, and do your reporters write differently for one than for the other? So let me tell you something really fascinating, that when I went to school here at Duquesne, my major was print journalism, uh, and here I am directing a, a, a digital operation, which is really um, sort of, you know, it's very fascinating. But, but I think, um, you know, I, I see our jobs as guardians of truth and as guardians of credibility, and um, regardless of what your platform is, whether it's print or digital, that's always something that I have to keep in mind when I'm talking to reporters and editors at the same time. I mean, so we have this responsibility to make sure that people get um, facts, right? And I think in this day and age, we can all agree that that's been sort of like a, a daily struggle for, our, for news organizations because the issue of fake news is whether or not uh, we believe what we're reading or we don't believe it, um, or is it factual or is it not factual. So um, I don't really see a difference between you know, the print world and the digital world. If, if anything, we have uh, every day more of a struggle because we are up against, as Richard from Google was saying earlier, you know, we have all these various different ways in which people are getting news now. Um, it's not just the paper when uh, I used to uh, you know, uh, read the recipes and read the news that editors decided they were gonna give me. Now um, the reader tends to be uh, more uh, of, uh, selective and determine, hey, this is what I wanna read. So I wanna make sure every day that I'm giving facts and, and, and truth and real information. Tony, you're an opinion columnist uh, at a newspaper that 
famously has uh, had some clashes between a new owner and uh, a beloved cartoonist. Well, actually, it's the same owner, but uh, a new editorial director. New editorial director. Right. So, t so how has that affected your job? Do you still feel the independence to write what you think? And has the new media environment and the economics of it affected the way that you express yourself? Um, well, the, I just don't have a relationship with the, ed the new editorial director. So I don't really feel um, the more conservative bent of the editorial page has any effect on me. Uh, I think the second that I'm asked to um, conform myself to a more, let's say, pro-Trump slant will probably be my last day there because I just can't. I wouldn't have any integrity if I did that. So um, I, I think they respect me enough to let me just go in my own direction, even though it's contrary to the editorial direction of the publisher and maybe even the page. Uh, as for new media, uh, I, I, I find that, um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a heavy Twitter user and I, you know, um, navigate around Facebook and other platforms um, just to get this, you know, my column out and so forth. And I like the interaction with um, the readers. Um, so I'm, I'm still, I consider myself a babe when it comes to these uh, other platforms. I'm, I'm, I'm learning them. I'm learning what their limitations are and so forth. So I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm open to, to learning and, and, and growing and, and hopefully um, deepening my ability to speak with integrity using these different platforms. All right, let's try to propose solutions to these problems that we've been discussing so uh, illuminatingly at the conference. So Richard Gingras did ask whether the internet had become a beacon of participation or a proliferator of venom that was dividing democracy. Nancy, you've identified the decline of traditional media intermediaries and decline in trust in those intermediaries as a big source of the problem. You presided over time at a time when it was uh, trusted. Um, and one of the solutions you've proposed is greater transparency and accountability so people know what's going on inside the newsroom. But tell us more about your proposals for how to resurrect trust and filtering in an age without intermediaries and filters. I do think as a as a, a guild that journalists historically have been particularly allergic to, we love asking questions, we don't like answering them. Uh, we, it's remarkable in some ways how little research there is about, you can, you can learn about the dynamic, the corporate dynamics of any number of industries and organizations. Much less of that is available about media institutions. We don't like letting people in to examine us. I think these are all maybe natural reflexes. And so transparency uh, doesn't necessarily come easily to us of revealing uh, as much as we can about how to go about how we went about reporting a story, why we chose to grant anonymity to certain sources and not others. Um, there, are, there are any number of questions that are much discussed within newsrooms, but that's a bit of a black box. And so to the extent that it's possible to let our audiences, our viewers, our readers, uh, our social platform followers know what goes into tracking down a story, the amount of work that goes into it, uh, and the standards by which we judge whether something is ready 
to be made public, I think would at least be a, a starting point. There's, a, there's some really disturbing data about this trust, the trust decline. And again, it's across all institutions practically, but the media trust decline has been precipitous. And, and it includes some shocking numbers about the number of people who think that reporters at mainstream news organizations just make up stories and make up stories about the president in particular. That, that's not a marginal 10% of people. It's north of 40% of people. And, and that, to me, speaks to um, just a failure on our part to really explain what, how we go about our jobs. And I think there's, there's room there just to be much more transparent about how we make decisions. Just a quick follow-up. Uh, not to get fancy, but the theorist Max Weber said that authority requires mystery. Is there a danger that transparency, personalizing reporters, leads to Twitter attacks on their politics and less trust rather than more? Well, I think you put your finger on, on a very important issue, which is as reporters, especially, you know, there, there are no boundaries between, you know, print reporters are on TV all the time and digital reporters are also, I mean, everyone, everyone is operating on every platform and so there are many more opportunities for people to get to know the, the, the face and the personality behind a byline. Um, for women journalists in particular, this uh, has subjected them to really astonishingly disturbing levels of abuse. Right. And, and I had women who left journalism from my newsroom because it just it wow. had become just a part of their, their uh, professional experience that had become intolerable. And, and the research about this globally um, is very alarming. Uh, and even the men in my newsroom were surprised. It's, you know, the men were accustomed to being told they were an idiot. They were not accustomed to having people say, I'm going to come to your home and kill your children. Right, right. And, and so I think that that is a, is a very significant challenge for how we are going to get bright, talented, motivated, idealistic people, men and women, to come into the profession, similar to getting people to come into, into public life, into politics, when um, anonymous and venomous attackers on social media have such free reign. Well, wow. right. I think I think Hugh Hewitt touched upon the anonymity of the internet being uh, impersonalizing, um, you know, the politics of of, of, of destruction um, on the internet, uh, especially Twitter, Facebook, and so forth, um, and comments under you know columns and news stories is uh, ha is a way of of delegitimizing what we do, and. Uh, I never agree with Hugh Hewitt on many things, but you know, I, I was pounding the air yesterday because I thought that, yeah, you know, we gotta eliminate the idea of hiding behind anonymity. I think if my name, my byline is out there, uh, I should expect the, that the person that is responding to me online uh, has the integrity to use his or her name as well. I think that's the only way you're gonna have any sort of discourse that has any authenticity. Liza, when you choose cartoon topics, you know, The, the New Yorker, uh, before the internet, was an unchallenged authority and no one could react except orally. You go to a cocktail party and say, I saw the great cartoon. Now, there can be a lot of commenters. Do you choose your topics and frame your cartoons in anticipation of the comments and reactions or yeah. not? 
No. And how and how do you formulate? That's great. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Good for the First Amendment. And and but tell us more how there's something really unique about the cartooning form as you express it. This sort of gentle satire, which is pointed but not polarizing. Say more about it. What your aim is and why it is that cartoons are able to do this in a way that uh, print is. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to explain uh, the process. Like, I will. Um, pay attention to the news, of course, and, and be an alert for what I want to do a drawing about. And um, for my kind of work, I pretty much do drawings that are not attacking specific individuals necessarily in the, in the government or in the, in the culture, but talk about cultural issues or talk about political issues or bigger, broader things that I see going on in the culture. Um, and sometimes that means I don't, I may be really angry about something that happened in the government or in our politics. Um, but I may not draw about it because I can't find an angle that that I see as a bigger picture idea to, to draw about. That's that's my work. And the New Yorker doesn't, the way it works, the New Yorker people are curious about this, I'll just be quick. We all submit a certain number of cartoons every week and they either buy one or they don't. So um, that's their process. It's been that way for almost 100 years. Nancy, more solutions. Let's really dig in. So trust, uh, so anonymity uh, is a double-edged sword, as we've just been discussing. What are other ways of rebuilding trust now that the intermediaries are gone? Uh, Richard Gingras said Google has an initiative to try to rebuild trust. There are technological solutions. Uh, Facebook could prioritize on the news feed links that people actually read. So it turns out fake news travels more quickly than real news because people share inflammatory headlines without reading them. And Facebook creepily can tell whether we've read a post uh, and they could choose. And in fact, the new Stanford project is proposing to put higher on the feed stuff that people read so to promote reason rather than passion. That's a modest technological solution. Other stuff along those lines? Well, for starters, let's just stop using the term fake news. It is a... Uh, Can we add political correctness to that list? Yeah. yeah. Um, I get it's, it's short and punchy and, and doesn't take up a lot of space in your headlines, and there are all sorts of you know, bad reasons why we default to it, especially since the alternatives are horrible. Um, but one of my colleagues, Claire Wardle, who's one of the world's experts in, in what we refer to as information disorder, uh, refers to face... F asterisk 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 news um, will not use the term, and it's partly because it has been so distorted from you know its original. We sort of understood oh Macedonian teenagers who were making up stories in order to make money. It has obviously um, transformed significantly and and come to mean any number of things, none of which are good for institutions or for trust or for journalism or for civil discourse. And among other things, it it elides the, the important differences between misinformation, which is information that's just wrong. It's a, it's a mistake that someone made, but it like an honest mistake. Um, malinformation, which is actually true, but intending to do harm. Mm. So Revenge porn is malinformation. Uh, the leaking, leaked emails, illegally leaked emails. The emails are true. The information is true. The intention behind publicizing them is to do harm. Right. In the middle is disinformation. Mm. Not true, intending to harm. And it is that space, that disinformation space, where you see the Facebook post that tells people you can vote by text 
and all of the different voter suppression efforts, all of the, the, um, the, the information that was shared uh, that isn't true, that is meant to, to damage individuals or damage institutions, those are, those are poisons in the body politic. And so I think if we don't have the right terminology and toxicology to address them, then it's going to be very hard to come up with a solution. So, so I agree with the way that she explains the, the difference between the terms, but the, the question then becomes is does the average reader out there who's reading our news uh, know the difference or know better? Because when the president uses that term over and over and over, it becomes part of, of, of the conversation, right? So nobody's going to care about the difference, even though you're right. So what do we do then? Well, what, what we need to do on this panel is figure out how serious a problem it is. And, and thank you, Nancy, for malinformation, misinformation, and disinformation. If we focus on disinformation, intentional propaganda sent out by bots or by people abroad to create chaos, Kathleen Hall Jameson's book uh, on the subject argues that it did make a difference in the election, although that's obviously contested. My question to you, Tony, as a journalist is, how serious a problem do you think disinformation is on the internet, or how would you go about measuring it? I think disinformation, I think, I think Nancy has it uh, absolutely correct. Uh, you know, it, it is, you, first of all, you have a credulous electorate. And you have, uh, all you had to do is look at 2016 and understand that uh, something um, outrageous and unusual happened there. And um, it was probably the, I'm no historian, but I, I'm wondering if it's perhaps the first election in American history, uh, given the fact that there were 78,000 votes um, that were the difference between uh, Trump um, and Clinton in terms of um, the Electoral College uh, victory. It's the first election that was probably significantly decided by disinformation, um, things that people believed um, that were just straight up lies um, that motivated them to vote in a particular way. It has had tangible impact on uh, our, our country and our history. And so, um, so how do we deal with it? Uh, I think we have to frankly acknowledge the fact that our uh, democracy is hackable. It is hackable by disinformation and that we have to make a concerted effort to root out the sources of disinformation. That means that we might have to change the whole structure of, of Facebook and our social media platforms, and um, maybe they need to be redesignated as uh, utilities uh, so that we can actually use some strong regulation to affect the way that they that we interact with them. Because disinformation is just going to be an intrinsic and inherent part of social platforms. Um, so we have to um, be realistic in how we approach them. So this puts the question squarely, and the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech if Facebook were regulated as a public utility, and Congress said, Facebook, you must root out disinformation, that would arguably violate the First Amendment, because Congress is not supposed to tell any individual to distinguish between fact and opinion. Jefferson said that that is a distinction for citizens to make for themselves, not for the government to make. And then even if Facebook on its own decided to 
tell us what was true and what was disinformation, that would put huge power in the hands of uh, young people and t-shirts and flip-flops in, in the valley who uh, ha are unreviewable. So, Louis, this is a really hard question, but if we posit that disinformation and malinformation are problems, how, if at all, should we expect Facebook and Google to solve it? Wow. That's wow, indeed. <laughs> well, I don't know how they're going to do it. I can tell you what we've been doing as news organizations yeah. in trying to root out misinformation and disinformation. And I'll give you an example of something that happened to us um, you know, last year. And because I, th I think the issue of, of misinformation and disinformation extends beyond politics. So we had an, an accident, a really a fatal crash uh, in one of the suburbs here in Pittsburgh. Three women were killed. Um, uh, on social media, uh, there was a video that appeared that went viral of these women prior to uh, the fatal wreck. These women were shown on Snapchat, um, you know, drinking, vodka, singing, uh, not being completely carefree. Really, I mean, they were drunk driving. Um, they were just singing. And everybody was sharing this video. And um, so our, our, when the video got into our hands, we said, well, do we share this video with our readers? You know, what do we do? What, what's our role here? And um, how do we d determine if the video is true, right? If it's real? It could have been created by anyone, by anyone, right? Um, so we decided not to, you know, share the video, you know, on our site because, you know, I couldn't confirm if the video was accurate or if it was true or if somebody had created it, right? So should I have, the question then becomes, should I have, should we have posted that video as a, as a news item because everybody was sharing it out there? Um, so I think we took it upon ourselves to sort of um, determine whether something was disinformation or misinformation. So I guess the question then becomes, should we have done that? We have, so here we have the power to do that, to, to make that decision, right? So that's what you're suggesting, that, yeah. that other organizations uh, do similar things in trying to root out misinformation, disinformation. Well, I don't think this is news. I'm not going to share it or, or post it for my readers, right? But isn't that the, late, the, the regular gatekeeping function of, of all, you know, news sites? I mean, newspapers do that, you know. On a day-to-day -day basis. We right. Do that. I mean, that's, right. that's no different. I, but I think that the problem here is so unique um, when you have a hackable democracy. Uh, we have to come up with um, creative um, ways of dealing with it. So, Liza, Tell us how you would feel as an artist and satirist and cartoonist being reviewed editorially by Facebook and Google. And the example I want to give is the innocence of the Muslim videos. A few years ago, both President Obama and the President of Egypt called on Facebook and Google to remove the innocence of the Muslim video on the grounds that it allegedly started the Benghazi riots. Facebook and Google looked at their hate speech policies, which forbid the criticism of a religious group, but not the criticism of a religious leader. So in other words, you can say, I hate Muhammad, but not I hate Muslims. Where did that distinction come from? A young uh, Facebook head of content who is an anthropology major at Bowdoin read John Stuart Mill and somehow came up with the distinction between criticizing a religion and criticizing a religious leader and wrote it into the Facebook uh, content policies. Hmm. So as a result, huh. Facebook said, no, this, the, the video criticizes the prophet, but not the religion. We're going to keep it up. Google, which adopted the Facebook policies, did the same thing. Later, it turned out the Benghazi riots seemed to have been caused by something else, so it was a good decision. It was more protective of free speech than President Obama and President of Egypt, but it came from this young anthropology graduate who basically just made it up. So would you feel, would you feel comfortable having your 
cartoons about the prophet or about anything else determined by policies made up by young anthropology no, graduates? I would, no. I would, no, I wouldn't. I think that's problematic. As I think it's been talked about in other panels in the, today and yesterday. Um, that brings up an interesting point about satire, how, um, aside from your question, um, the notion of punching up versus punching down. Um, when the Charlie Hebdo deaths happened in Paris, um, there was a lot of discussion among cartoonists about um, whether, whether Charlie Hebdo artists had gone too far in, in making fun of, of Muslims in their cartoons. Um, they made fun of Christians and all other religions as well. It's just what the French humorists do. But um, many cartoonists, Gary Trudeau among them, would write, and I wrote about it too, we, our responsibility really is to punch up, to punch to the leaders, to the people in charge, not to people on the ground, not the people who practice the religion or whatever. And I, I personally feel that's the way to go with satires, to, to take that responsibility seriously. But I wanted to mention, I wanted to ask a question because it was brought up yesterday. What about the antitrust idea with, with having more than one Facebook or more than one Twitter? Does that, does that solve a problem? I don't know. Well, I'm, the, not a, I'm not a lawyer. It, treating Google as a public utility, even assuming the politics of it were there, uh, would still, uh, the government would be constrained in what it could order the platforms to do when it comes to speech, because speech uh, is protected by the First Amendment against government regulation. So Google has argued in court that its search algorithm itself is protected speech, and that uh, in response to charges that it's prioritizing the search results of its own companies over its competitors, which it denies, uh, it says you can't force us to tweak the algorithm anyway because the algorithm itself is speech. Hmm. And this is what Justice Elena Kagan has called the weaponization of the First Amendment to basically prevent economic regulation of the companies on the grounds that all of their activities are protected speech. So all this is to say it's a complicated question and simply treating the companies as public utilities wouldn't give the government free reign to tell them what they wanted. But, but Nancy, what do you think about both the proposal to treat them as public utilities and the general wisdom of asking the companies to serve this editorial function, which they're not currently doing? Well, I'm a little skeptical of the notion that, that they, are, they are just pipes. They are just platforms. I, you could argue that an algorithm is an editorial function, and it has been, it, it may not be a human sitting reading and making a judgment, but algorithms are created by humans. Uh, they, that is another black box. There's a lot that we don't know. Um, and so to go back to the transparency question, how big a difference would it make uh, for, for more of the interior calculations of the platforms to be, have to be visible of how stories are prioritized? or not. Uh, much more importantly, as we head into another election, is how do you know who is paying for ads? And part of the problem of the disinformation that was spread the last time is that it was impossible for candidates to combat a, f a false rumor because they didn't know that it was being spread because those ads were so carefully targeted. Or if there were ads that were, were saying that you know, a certain polling place was uh -huh. in a different place than it actually was, or giving any kind of information that would confuse voters or deter them from turning out. There were rumors of, of active shooters around polling places. Um, there, were all, there was all sorts of really malign information spread leading up to and on election day. 
and if much of that is being spread, uh, paid for by dark money, and spread in ways that it can't be policed, can't be seen, can't be monitored, uh, then you really do have a problem. You don't even know what you're fighting then. It's, and so I think that, that, to go back to transparency, how much uh, is it reasonable to expect to know about, and how much transparency, and what would that look like for who is paying for ads, and who, how they're being targeted, and how that is working. We, we're so far behind what we know about television ads and print ads compared to to what we're seeing on social platforms. Louise, what's your perspective on the platforms, given the fact that a lot of your hits must come from Facebook links, as all media organizations do, and would you want them to be in the business of making content-based decisions? Absolutely not. Uh, what's interesting, though, in, in all this conversation, as I was listening to Nancy speak, um, I have uh, two teenagers, and we talk a lot about Facebook, but they don't get anything, any of their news from Facebook, because Facebook is for old people, <laughs> and, which is kind of fascinating uh, in and of itself, and this, so that's a whole other story. Um, but I, I, I do well, think... Well, Instagram, so that may... <laughs> Instagram, Snapchat, I mean, I think um, the issue with... Uh, with Facebook um, and, and trying to sort of make sure that they uh, understand. I mean, I, I'm not sure, Facebook is too big, I, I think. I mean, I don't know that we can sort of come up with, um, I mean, I know that we wanna sit here and come up with solutions. I'm not sure that we can, right? I mean, I think it's, uh, it's upon us. I mean, right now, I know that in our newsrooms, every day we have to worry about um, you know, creating headlines that are going to be searchable so that you know, we get enough hits and, and it, it's, it's the reality of how the news world has evolved today is that we have to pay attention to analytics and we have to pay attention to uh, what people are reading. I'm not sure if that's great, but I think back in you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't pay attention to um, what, what people were reading. We just certainly just, we fed, you know, you guys created a magazine and, uh, and you know, Time Magazine and you read it. This is what I'm supposed to read. Now I have the uh, flexibility to read what I want to read. And uh, so we are paying a lot of attention to what people are reading and giving them more, right? Are those metrics consistent with free and open, robust public debate? So I was at the old New Republic for many years and then uh, at the very end, the owner who had it for just a bit put up in the newsroom uh, flat screens with how quickly pieces were traveling and the most valued pieces were the ones that traveled the most. And we all know as journalists that there's huge pressure to write pieces that travel. It's, it's Is that the consistent? It's demoralizing. Absolutely. I mean, because basically, you're, you're, um, if you're just responding to market pressures, at what point uh, do you give up your identity as a journalist? I mean, you're, you know, our job is, is, is not to give the people what they want. Our job is to give the people what they need. And that may sound condescending at times. It may sound, you know, um, that like we are making ourselves, you know, judges or something. But, you know, our, our job is actually quite simple to, to go out and report and gather news um, without fear or favor. And sometimes folks don't like what we come up with if we just leave it to public engagement to determine what it is that we're going to put you know, on our platforms, you know, we've lost it. You know, you can't leave it to folks, to um, the public to dictate what the news is. And I know that's a controversial idea. I hate, I absolutely hate seeing those metric boards because 
you know, oh, my stuff does well, but what if it didn't? You know, but, and you think about, you know, people in the newsroom, they, they, it's like, how come my piece that I, I sweated over, you know, blood and tears, isn't doing well? It doesn't mean anything about the quality of the piece. It just means that it hasn't engaged with the broadest possible public, you know? It, it isn't junk food. You know, you think about the, you know, the New York Times piece on, on Trump um, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, about the sources of his wealth. Not a lot of people in the general public read it or cared about it. It was still groundbreaking and important, and it has, you know, advanced our understanding of, of our president, you know, by leaps and bounds. Very powerful point. Our job as journalists is not to give the public what the most of them want. Give them what, what they need. What society eat your spinach? It's necessary in a. That, that's a yeah, you know what? Spinach is better for you than all the other. Crap. Yes, it is. Spinach is excellent, and so is broccoli. <laughs> with, um, broccoli, too. So it's all about a balanced diet, right? So you give them a little bit of what they want and a little bit of what we believe as journalists, as you know, powerful watch, watchdog journalism. So, yeah, we, you have to, that's the challenge that we have, right, uh, to make sure that we have a, a balance uh, in, in the diet that we're giving our readers. Yeah, that's what I wanted yeah. to concur with Tony in that I, I, uh, I, for the last 10 years, I've been doing cartoons about women's rights and feminism, right. just get, putting them out there, putting them out there, and not mm -hmm. getting much response. I don't pay attention to metrics either. I, Thank you. So, uh, I hate And that. now, feminism is an okay word. Right. It's an okay subject, and it's a popular topic right. to draw about. Nancy, as you're, you're an editor of you know, one of the most distinguished uh, magazines, and how do you balance the economic need to have pieces that travel against your sense of what the public requires? Because ultimately, the, in the grand scheme, the business model is that you have to be trusted and you have to be valuable and chasing clickbait in the end is going to undermine the core identity that makes you valuable in the first place. I, I will say, given that we're at a conference on the First Amendment and sitting in the middle of a great university, I do think one of the solutions that is urgently needed is, is the growth of a field of study of public interest technology. Hmm. And we've seen, you know, we saw the field of public health come out of the medical schools and public interest law out of the law schools, and we are going to need this rising generation who are the first generation of digital natives, whose, whose instincts about how information travels are, are different than, than older generations, and who, when it's their turn to be the lawmakers and the regulators, I suspect, um, we'll have a more sophisticated and subtle understanding because we are in such a dramatically transitional time. And so uh, when, when you look at the hearings in the Senate with the, with the representatives of the platforms as these issues of regulation are explored, it just did not seem like a fair fight. And the, the, the difference in knowledge and expertise and understanding, technological understanding particularly, um, is significant. And so for universities to commit themselves, and it'll have to be a collaborative interdisciplinary effort of, of the engineers and the computer scientists and the political scientists and the psychologists about how these technologies work, how information moves, what we understand about them. Uh, all of those disciplines are going to have to create the next generation of public interest technologists who will serve a public good about how we think about these challenges. What a wonderful note on which to 
and Madison talked about the need for citizens to deliberate in public interest rather than private interest. We have identified the ways the technologies are speeding up deliberation so fast that it's creating digital mobs, and Nancy has rightly inspired us here at the home of Carnegie Mellon and Duquesne and all of these great universities to bind together to promote the use of public interest technologies that will save democracy and promote free expression. Please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>
with, with a lot of different influences. <clears throat> and he was very concerned that this was going to have a deleterious effect on, on democracy and, um, and was urging sort of a more objective approach to the news. Now, the way that he defined objective, uh, and he was really the first person to sort of focus on that, uh, was a little bit different from what we talk about now, is a sort of basically a very determined, almost scientific way of trying to get at the actual facts. And one of the things he was very concerned about, among many others, was uh, propaganda. He had actually been part of the propaganda machine during the Wilson administration, and uh, he was concerned about the impact of government propaganda <coughs> on, on news organizations, that they were susceptible to that, and that they were susceptible to other things, their own, including their own ideas, their own opinions, things like that, and that we needed to get beyond that. And if we didn't get beyond that, that that would be a risk to, to democracy as well. Somehow democracy has survived uh, that, but um, these concerns are more deeply rooted. I think they, they are aggravated these days because there are so many places and so many voices now with the internet and with social media uh, that people will migrate to, to <coughs> sources of so-called news or information uh, that, that affirms their pre-existing point of view. And then they won't be open to information that comes from other sources. And uh, that's, I think that's a very risky, that's a very risky path for us. It's, wor it's worth, it's worth, whenever, whenever I um, am deluged with um, all of the stuff that comes in on social media and all of the, the com competing journalism of all qualities, I, I always remind myself, this is better. And we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't get so caught up in, in, um, in our criticism. I grew up in the South with two newspapers available to me and three local television stations. And, and the two newspapers at the time were not very good. And that same kid growing up in New Orleans can choose to read any number of newspapers online any place in the world. That same person has available to him, that same kid has available to him a whole wide range of opinions. Yes, it's harder to, to separate the wheat from the chaff, but I, it, it's worth slowing down and saying that's still better than a period in society when you only had two or three voices and when the world seems so much smaller. I, I'm, I'm probably a, a, a little bit of an idealist, but I, but I think, as most editors are, I think over time this settles down, and it's, but it's, it's better. It's, it's crazy-making. It makes my life miserable sometimes, but it's better. But the burden has shifted in a really significant way. Uh, Marty, you referenced uh, Walter Lippmann and his, his theory, which really put the burden on the press, on, put the burden on the newspapers and the editors to make sure that things were objective, that, that, that things were neutral, that things were balanced. It seems to me that with... Not that with, they were neutral, that they were factual. Yeah, thank you. The, um, the change, though, in, in this uh, high-tech, uh, social media, internet world really shifts the burden, I think, from uh, the newspapers or, or the media entities to the consumer. The consumer's got to play a much bigger and more aggressive role in being judgmental about what they're getting. And are they playing it that way, or is it not working? Well, many of you remember the... Uh the uh, clothing chain called Sims, Cy Sims. And his advertising uh, the um, line was, an educated consumer is our best, is our best customer. 
And I would say the same thing about the Post-Gazette and about the Times and the Post. An educated consumer is our, is our best <coughs> customer. And yet we, under, we understand that a lot of people you know, want to go, migrate to the things that they agree with. That's an American tradition too. How do you think the French, the um, American Revolution began? I mean, well, the committees of correspondence were not objective uh, newspapers. They were, the uh, stuff they put out was, uh, had a certain ideological tinge to it. Uh, it wasn't particularly congenial to the King of England. Um, that's an American tradition. Only in, really, in our lifetimes or, or a little bit, a little bit bef before that has American journalism been as straight as it is today. You know, I, I've been asked a, a lot by people, well, how do, I know, how do I know who to trust? And, you know, one, it's, it's a tough question to answer, uh, but I think you have to go through a series of steps. Uh, I mean, one of them is, um, uh, is this a news organization that allows a variety of opinions, for example, on its op-ed pages, if it's a, if it's a newspaper, uh, or does it only have one that it offers? Uh, so, for example, on our op-ed page, we have a wide range of, uh, a wide range of opinions. Uh, on <coughs> and we encourage that, and we're constantly looking for new voices to be there. Uh, is this an organization that actually has reporters? Do they have a substantial staff? Uh, we have about, at the Post, we have about 850 journalists in our organization. I can tell you that if we were engaged in just fabricating stories, fake news, uh, I don't need 850 people to do that. I can assure you, I can save, <laughs> we can save a lot of money. Um, and a couple of people would be fine. Uh, so, um, I mean, this is just not, it's not what we do. And we have people who are, you know, do you, if, you're, if you're writing about what's happening around the world, do you actually have correspondents around the world on the scene? Do you have people who are, who are eyewitnesses? <clears throat> Those are the kinds of things that, you know, the exercise that people need to go through. I mean, why is it that in our society that somebody like, you know, Alex Jones at InfoWars uh, is believed by so many people when he says that the, the killings at, uh, in Newtown at Sandy Hook Elementary School, that those were fake, that those were, that they were synthetic, that they were using child actors, that this was choreographed by the Obama administration in order to support gun control. I mean, it's just appalling, and you can imagine what those parents feel like, and many of them have talked about what it feels like to be described as participants in a hoax. And yet, he had a huge Twitter following and Facebook following, and, and his YouTube videos were watched by millions of people, uh, and people bought into it. And some of those people started harassing the parents of kids who were murdered in Newtown. And that's horrifying. And, it, and uh, people need to be educated as well. Did he have any reporters there? Uh, you know, what kind of news organization does he have? Is it even a news organization, which it's not? And that's the sort of critical thinking that I think consumers of news need to go through. But if the question then is one of education, of the public being better educated about how to be citizens, how to ask their own questions, what's the role for, for newspapers in trying to advance that education? I would, I would go back to what we said before. I mean, we have not been good historically in letting people, in, a, in an era when, to be frank, 80% of our revenue came from advertising. And we probably didn't quite treat the reader with the respect that our generation of editors treats them now. I don't think we understood how to let people know why they should trust us. I think that we were a little arrogant. I think we said, of course you understand that that dateline means that that person is not only in Kabul, but she's risking her life. Of course you know that we have all these reporters and everything is true and factual. I think that the, I think that the reader, of course, has to have a large burden to, to separate 
responsible media from irresponsible media, but I think we could make it a lot easier for them. I think we can make, make our case a lot more forcefully at what we do, how much of our reporting. I mean, I think that, that all of our news organizations in, in describing the backgrounds of our reporters and in just being much more open to how we do business, I think that that's a big, I, I, don't, I don't think you can overstate how big that is. I mean, I grew up in an era when if a reader called up, when I was a 20-year-old reporter in New Orleans, if a reader called up, you hung up on them. It's like, why are you bothering me? I'm doing my work for me and my friends here. And I think that's that is a giant change I in the never way we did ever. That. I never did that. <laughs> yeah, you just didn't pick it up. That's all. <laughs> you know, I, I go back to one of uh, Dean's predecessors twice, uh, four times removed, and I joined the New York Times in 19. Um, uh, I guess it was 1850. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Abe Rosenthal said. Marty and I used to read you when we were kids. Yeah. We were <laughs> <laughs> used to cut it out and put it on your refrigerator, right? Um, uh, Abe Rosenthal, who was the executive editor of the New York Times, uh, said, told me this. When one educated person somewhere in America runs into another educated person somewhere in America at 9 a.m., each will assume of the other that they've read the New York Times. That sentence would never come out of his, his mouth. Right. Never, because it's a much different world. Right. Right. Uh, last May on Meet the Press, the historian John Meacham said, uh, talking about history and how history has worked to protect us, there are three or four forces that have saved the republic at various points. The presidency, the Congress, the press, the courts, the people. And it seems to me today that we're pretty reliant on the press and the courts. Look, everybody has responsibility in a democracy. I think, it's I think one of the, we were talking earlier about the decline in confidence in American institutions, not just the press, but certainly the press, but other institutions as well. And I think that that's what we have to worry about. Uh, I think it's really hard to have a democracy when you don't have strong institutions. I think it's really hard to have a democracy when you don't have people agree on a baseline set of facts. I mean, we should argue about policies. People should argue. They should argue vigorously about those sorts of things. And that's why we have a democracy. And I think that's one of the great things about a democracy is the competition for ideas. Uh, but ultimately, you have to agree on a baseline set of facts, like what happened yesterday. Uh, and it's concerning when, that, when we don't have that. Uh, I think that much of the press is, is trying to do its job the way that it should be done, uh, taking a lot of flack for it, but that's okay, uh, because I think we have a strong, we have a strong sense of mission. Uh, the courts, as far as I can tell, seem to be doing their jobs the way that they're supposed to be done. Uh, you know, uh, I think we, you know, we need other institutions to do their job, to do their jobs as well. And uh, it's, it's a hard thing to maintain a democracy. It's not, that, it's not the norm uh, in, in the world. Uh, and so I think all of us have a, a, a role to play, and we should play it. And we shouldn't be going about the business of trying to destroy those institutions, which are fundamental to a strong democracy. Well, I would, I would go even further and just say that uh, America, you won't express, expect to hear this from a panel of editors, but America is stronger when it has a strong Republican Party. The uh, Republican Party has been a major part of our, uh, of our country since 1856. Um, it's, it's in a different, difficult situation right now. Uh, and we need all of our institutions to be strong, the press, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the judiciary, and the legislature, which um, 
It was once described as America's only, only native criminal class. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, we need them all to be strong, and it makes us stronger, and it makes our, our role even more enhanced. I, I do think this is a, this is a I mean, it's a, to say the obvious, a large moment in the history of the press where, where our role in raising questions about powerful institutions is even more important than ever. Because I would leave, I would not, I would, I would include, by the way, that we also play a large role in questioning some of the powerful private institutions, whether it's the platforms, whether it's the major corporations that, that sway the government, whether it's even other governments like the Saudi government. I think this is, a, this is a, a, an important moment for the press. I think it's an important moment for the press to be as ambitious as possible, um, to not see borders in our, in our need to call power, power into question. And, um, and I think that it's unfortunate that there are fewer institutions that can do that for economic reasons um, than there were 20 years ago. But I think it's an important, I mean, you know, the United States is, is at war in various parts of the world in ways we don't understand and don't know, which predates the Trump administration. Um, there, are, there are, you know, the, the story is much larger too than Donald Trump. And I think that there's, there, it's, a, it's a moment where the press is called upon to be more ambitious than it's ever been. You know, uh, some people sometimes ask me when they're, thinking about a career, why do you want to be a journalist? And I say, well, it's great because you get to ask impertinent, impertinent questions of your social betters. And if those social betters <laughs> aren't strong, it's much, much less fun. Uh, Representative Adam Schiff, who we see on television very, fairly frequently, uh, has said repeatedly that he sees greater threats to America and democracy internally than he does from any meddling by Russia. And that sort of surprised me, even coming from Adam Schiff. Uh, I wonder how you see that and how you, since, you're, since you have put so much, uh, so many of your resources into covering uh, the question of how much meddling Russia has done, uh, how would you see that balance? Well, look, I mean, these are not mutually exclusive. First of all, I wouldn't call it meddling. I would call it interference. Uh, meddling diminishes what, yes. what actually transpired, and it was... Uh, I think highly consequential interference in the election. Um, you know, the matter of whether there was some sort of collaboration or collusion uh, with the Trump campaign is a separate matter, but this well documented that there was interference in the, Amer in the American election. Uh, that's a matter of concern. And uh, then we have our own domestic concerns as, as well. And, you know, I, I get concerned about, it's not, it's not just a matter of whether we're observing the letter of the law. It's a matter of whether we're observing the democratic norms uh, that have sustained this country over uh, such a long period of time. Uh, actually, not so long, really, when you think about it in comparison to other countries. Uh, and it's how we behave with each other, whether, whether there are modes of civility, whether we can have disagreements uh, without uh, seeing each other as the enemy, uh, without describing each other as the opposition party, whether we recognize that there's a role for the press as written into the, as written into the, you know, the First Amendment, uh, that, th that there's respect for the role as, you know, James Madison talked about examining public characters and measures is what he talked about. That's what we are supposed to do in addition to public characters and measures. I think powerful institutions and powerful individuals who have an impact on the lives of ordinary people, we're also supposed to, to look at that. 
and that that should be expected of us, uh, and that people should respect that role, I think, within this society. Uh, and, and the same is true for respect for the other uh, fundamental institutions in our, in our society. And when that begins to erode, I think we, uh, that's when we really need to worry. And I think those are the kinds of internal domestic concerns that probably Congressman Schiff was talking about. But Max, with the exception of the period 1941 to 45, the threat to this country has always been more internal than external, the McCarthy, McCarthyism, uh, some of the notions of Charles Lindbergh. You know, Marty talked about some of the stuff during World War I. Surely the uh, Civil War and the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts, the threat, the threat to our democracy almost always is more homegrown than external. I think if, if which, I don't, I don't know how to balance the Russia versus the, the internal, I don't, I don't think we, we know enough, but if shift meant, um, the relentless attack by this administration on the institutions, including the press, that are necessary to uphold the democracy, he's right. Um, I mean, it, it, we, we do have a president who not only regularly attacks the press, regularly calls out you know, individual journalists, regularly calls out independent institutions, judges, um, even members of his own cabinet, I mean, it, it, is, I, I, it is remarkable that the President of the United States beats up the intelligence community, the Attorney General, pretty regularly. If, if Schiff meant that undermining those independent pillars of the democracy is the most troublesome threat, he's got a point. One of the things that the four of us were talking about uh, a little bit earlier before we came on stage was how little history the average American knows and how important history can be. And I think we make that same mistake sometimes with the First Amendment. And we think, oh my God, because um, President Trump or others may say threatening things, the First Amendment is challenged in ways that are unbelievable and unprecedented. And that's certainly not true. I mean, if you think back to World War I, Woodrow <clears throat> Wilson shut down the First Amendment in a very autocratic way. I wonder if the three of you could talk a little bit about, I know you're all students of history, about how the First Amendment has fared at various times through history. Well, they always say that the first uh, casualty in war is, is truth. And so we've seen that throughout uh, our lifetimes in Vietnam, surely, and uh, even first casualty of truth came before the Iraq War of 2003. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's always a danger. President Lincoln was no great friend of the First Amendment while the Civil War was going on. So it's always a, always a challenge. But you know, in an institution like this, the First Amendment has many, many dimensions, and uh, I wouldn't sh give short shrift to the uh, freedom of religion that's, uh, that even precedes the freedom of the press in the First Amendment. Well, you know, as, as, I mean, as David's pointed out, I mean, this First Amendment has been under challenge uh, for since, you know, the time of John Adams, actually. He right. was the first one with the Sedition Act, and, and then Woodrow Wilson, and, uh, you know, we had the McCarthy era, we had lots of other, you know, in, instances to, over the course of American history where the First Amendment has come under challenge. Uh, I can't say that uh, there are a lot of attacks on the press now. I think there's an effort to sort of marginalize us and, uh, uh, and to basically undercut us and undermine our role in, in American society. I think it's highly corrosive over the, over the long run. 
but you know, the president himself has been a beneficiary of the First Amendment. I mean, he just won a libel suit, um, you know, brought by Stormy Daniels, uh, on basically taking advantage of what the First Amendment allows him to do. And uh, he's talked about sort of rewriting the libel laws, which are basically at the state level anyway, but I'm not sure he can do very much. Certainly the Supreme Court can change its interpretation. That's possible. But, um, but he's been a beneficiary of the First Amendment, perhaps one of the greatest beneficiaries. If we had the right, if Americans had the right to actually successfully sue the president for the kinds of statements he's made, you know, he'd be, he wouldn't be as rich as he is today. Uh, whatever, however rich he is, uh, he wouldn't be as rich as he is, he isn't as rich as he is today. Um, you know, I, my view is that, uh, there's a quote that I like, which I also brought, uh, which is um, this quote from Justice Robert H. Jackson in a 1945 ruling on behalf of the First Amendment. And uh, he said, every person must be his own watchman for the truth, for truth, because the forefathers did not trust any government to separate the true from the false for us. And I really believe that. And uh, we don't want to end up in a situation where people say the only person telling the truth is the, head, is the chief of state, the head of state. And uh, we have to be our own watchmen for, for, for truth. We have to get information from reliable, reliable sources. You can't be a, go about the business of trying to discredit and undermine institutions, whether it's the press, the courts, the intelligence agency, law enforcement, all of that, and say, I am the only source of truth. Uh, if we go down that, that road, then we're heading to a, a, a system that I think none of us will, will recognize. I think this, this president may be extreme, of course, not maybe, he is extreme, but I don't think I've covered a president as a reporter, Washington bureau chief or editor of a newspaper who truly, truly practiced full disclosure. Um, I, don't, I don't think any president that I've ever been involved in covering felt completely comfortable with the First Amendment. I think they did, they may have sort of morally felt comfortable with it, but confront, when confronted with hard questions about the way they conduct war, when confronted with hard questions about the way they make internal decisions that when they made mistakes, I don't think there's been a president who's been completely comfortable with it, which is why us, our institutions being, being independent and credible are so important. Well, you know, the courts expand and contract law in a variety of ways through history. And in the last 60 years, the courts have really expanded the reach, the breadth of the First Amendment in really wonderful and significant ways. But is there a fear that maybe the courts in the next 20 or 30 years will contract a lot of those freedoms? Go ahead. Sure. Uh, David. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, <laughs> you're, of course. David, you're the historian. <laughs> it's always yeah. that fear. It's always that fear. But take a look at the three of us. Do we look particularly lovable? Um, well, yes. Marty, you maybe. But the, <laughs> I mean, we're pretty stubborn here. And we, we know how to fight and we know how to do our jobs. And I, I think the First Amendment is in uh, good hands when these two gentlemen are editors of the two most important papers in the country. And there are other editors across the country who are fighting to do their work and who believe in. We are the, actually, I want to say this, we are the last believers. We believe in the United States. We believe in the Constitution. We believe in the Bill of Rights more than anyone almost on, on earth. We, we, we are so naive that we actually believe in it all. <laughs> stretch, if, you, if you stretch the, the definition of attacks on, on press freedom to be even a little bit beyond the First Amendment, 
I worry about the proliferation of leak investigations. I worry about that this administration and this Justice Department has made it very clear that, um, that, they, that they don't like leaks, that they don't like disclosures of information they don't think should be disclosed. It just so happens that we're at a time of technology and warfare and the rise of intelligence and the rise of the military, that there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the world involving the United States that people don't know about and don't understand. And I think those and, and we, we are completely reliant on anonymous sources and classified information to understand what the U.S. role is in Pakistan, what the U.S. role is in Syria, what the U.S. role is in, in Niger and all over the world. So the attack on the, the, the constant investigations of leaks scares the hell out of me. And, and I think that's going to continue, especially if, if you outline a, a plan where the Republicans maintain control of Congress. And I think that's really scary at a moment when so much of what we know about what government does is going to come from anonymous sources and is classified. We're just about out of time, so I wanted to give each of you 20 or 25 seconds each for a final thought something maybe that we haven't even covered that you think is important. David? I think that we have a panelist on this panel who actually knows how to pronounce Niger. 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 <laughs> Tells us that the New York Times is in good hands, and so is the press. Uh, gee, I don't know that I have a grand final thought, except that, you know, I mean, I do think that, um, just to reiterate, I think there's a determined effort now to try to obliterate the idea of objective fact. Uh, and I think that as a democracy, we need to agree on a baseline set of facts. And uh, there are organizations that we're, look, we have, we're flawed, for sure, uh, because we're human. We're like people in any other profession. We make mistakes. Uh, but I think there's no question that we are determined in our mission to try to get at the facts and try to get at the truth. And uh, that's a, you know, it, and when I walk into our newsroom every day, uh, I look at the principles that were set down in 1935, and the first one is to tell the truth as nearly as the truth may be ascertained. Uh, and that's what we try to do. It recognizes that uh, that's a process. That's a process of striving. The truth can be elusive. But it also recognizes that there is such a thing as truth, and there are such things as facts. And it's not just a matter of your personal opinion or how much power you have or how big a megaphone you have. The only thing I want to say in closing is to repeat something I said before. Um, it's, it's really easy to get into a panic, and I do it myself sometimes, over the way information sort of is sort of flooding the zone. Um, but it is important to remember this is better. It is important to remember that we have so much more access to information than we've ever had before. Yes, there's crap, but somebody who lives in New Orleans can now read the Washington Post in real time. That's a big deal. When I was a kid, I could get the New York Times at the library a week and a half later, and I couldn't get the Washington Post. You can get the Post Post Gazette in New Orleans, by the way. That's okay. Yeah. Well, that's in real time, too. But I think that's a, that's a we just can't, we can't get in such a panic. And I get the panic. I'm panicked, too. We can't get in such a panic that we forget that. That's huge and significant. Thank, thank you, Dean. And please, all of you, join me in thanking this extraordinary thank you. group of leaders.
Our next session examines the First Amendment on the edge, new, controversial, and outlier approaches. Moderating this session will be Andy Conti, founding director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. Mr. Conti writes the Pittsburgh Public Editor column at Next Pittsburgh and was previously an investigative journalist for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Our panel for this session includes James O'Keefe and Selena Zito, and I invite them to the stage. Good afternoon. So I promised at the beginning, I promised James backstage that I wouldn't joke about whether he had cameras hidden all over his person. <laughs> but I can say, James, that I acted all day as if he did. That uh, <laughs> I think that, that's got to be part of the standard. So when people talk about the work you do, there's no question that if you look at the results, that you catch people saying things that they wouldn't say normally if they knew a journalist was in the room. If they knew they were talking to a journalist, they wouldn't behave in the way that they do. And I think people are open to that. They're willing to see that you know, hypocrisy, duplicity, those things are, when you uncover those, those are part of bedrocks of journalism. But where you lose a lot of journalists are the methods that you go about doing it, where you send somebody and oppose as something they are not. Can you talk about why you do that? Talk about your methodology. Well, first of all, I'm going to answer your question about that. But let me first tell you um, a bit about why I'm here. I'm not here to seek recognition from established media. I don't seek your praise, and I don't really care what the established media thinks of me. I'm here because I recognize the power that's inherent in mainstream media. Okay, our stories can't succeed unless they get in the mainstream media. That's our mission. And this week, we were on every single TV station in Missouri after we caught Claire McCaskill and her staffers. Every TV station. I understand that the media has more power than all three branches of government because an informed citizenry is what makes that power. Well, so then do you feel like you're part of the story by going out and so you, you, do, you come up with a clip, you challenge somebody, you get them on TV, then other journalists pick up your story? Well, I think, I think it has a lot to do with what constitutes a compelling public interest. And a lot of people in the media don't think there's anything wrong with the media, but the media has is not very popular amongst the American people. So what we did and what journalists have a problem with, Andy, is we went undercover into the media itself. I mean, who's going to guard the guardsmen? Brian Stelter seems like a nice guy, but I don't think so. Someone has to hold them accountable. If the media has more power than all three branches of government, and many people in history have said that, who is going to hold them accountable? So we go undercover, because you had asked me about Dean Baquet, executive editor of the New York Times, and posing as a victim in the Washington Post. We go undercover into CNN. We find a CNN producer in Atlanta who says that the Russia story is for ratings. Brian Stelter in Atlanta said that the CEO of CNN said in an internal meeting, it's all about the ratings. In his words, it was, and I quote, the Russia story was, and I quote, bullshit, unquote. His words, not mine. I don't report anything unless you can see and hear it coming out of people's own mouths. That's a standard that's well above and beyond Bob Woodward, who quotes anonymous sources relaying information from another anonymous sources months after the fact and uses poetic license. So, I mean, you've established, and I think, you know, I acknowledge that from the beginning, people, it's clear that, you know, your results, the things that people say, they've, been, they've acknowledged that, yes, people say things differently when they're in private. But why do you send in people, reporters, the Washington Post case that you just referenced? Well, we you sent, sent in somebody we, we who sent a, a reporter a, because a victim. due so to the why? extraordinary urgency of the circumstances and how broken we think the media has become, and this is not a right-wing sentiment, you can go ahead and read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent to understand the perverse economic incentives that exist in the media, the pressure that advertisers put on people. This is not a right-wing methodology. 
You can go back and read Eber Bernays' propaganda. You can read uh, Walter Niebuhr talk about the stupidity of the average man. We, we, we went into the Washington Post for one reason, to draw people out. Look at the history of undercover journalism. You have people posing as longshoremen. You have the Chicago Sun-Times, which has denied a Pulitzer Prize for posing as a bartender for nine months. You look at the history, people posed as drug traffickers. We posed as pimps, prostitutes, telephone technicians. It's always to draw an honest conversation out of the person we're talking to. And I unequivocally and categorically deny that I ever tried to plant a fake story, ever. If you go back and read the original Washington Post story, they did not report that. Those were motives that were falsely attributed to me after the fact. And I would go under oath, as would my entire staff, if given the opportunity. I would go under oath to say that. But you feel like you can't get into those conversations unless you, you go in with duplicitous, or you go in, as a, in, in under false pretenses. You can't, people are not gonna be honest oftentimes. It's like what veteran journalist Ken Aletta said, that politicians are gonna make it really hard for you to know what they're actually thinking and doing. So he's, this is his words, not mine. You need to bribe and seduce them. This is not about journalism ethics, okay? This is about power. This is about who's you are, who you are allowed to investigate, because if we were doing this to the NRA or to anti-abortionists, y'all would be singing my praises. So let's hear, let's hear it from Selena's perspective, because I think you also, you speak with a lot of people who feel like they don't have a voice, who, don't, who aren't heard. How do you do it? Do you go in, do you ever, do you ever pose as something else? And what do you, what's your methodology for getting stories out of people? No, I'm always Selena Zito. <laughs> <laughs> it's boring. Um, so I approach journalism um, sort of the way that you used to uh, when there were a lot of smaller newspapers, where I try to go into a community or into a region and and sort of become part of the community and, and, and listen to what the concerns are. Um, that's especially been my approach covering politics. I was blessed to be able to do that when I worked for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. I was able to travel around. And w when I interview people or, or when I go to a town, I, um, I usually go to a town a couple of days ahead of time or a region. Uh, I don't take, I don't fly. I don't take um, highways. Um, I take the back roads so I can understand what's happening in a community, not just in the town, but also along the way to see how things have changed economically, either positively. How are the suburbs doing? Are there, is there growth there? Is there sprawl there? How's that impacting the local economy? Is there technology there? But also, is there you know decay there? Have things fallen apart? Has industry left? How has that impacted the schools, the education, the churches, the communities, and the families' lives? Has it broken families up? Uh, and so when I understand that, then you start to understand how you talk to people about um, how they're voting, where their sentiments are. That's how I understood what was going to happen uh, in 2016. I actually wrote a story for the Trib at the time. Uh, I went to uh, 10 counties in Pennsylvania and, and understood that these 10 counties were going to flip. And all they needed to do was change 2,000 more votes than they did in 2012, and, and that the election in Pennsylvania was over. And if it was over in Pennsylvania, then that meant it was over in Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, and Florida. States that were, and also Ohio and Iowa. Selena, all states. I, how do you, so it's, because you're from Western Pennsylvania, you're here, you can talk to people here in an authentic way, but whenever you go to another community, you're in Louisiana, or you're in Texas or somewhere, how do you, 
What makes you different than the ordinary journalist who goes in and tries to talk to the residents? Well, I try to make sure that I really understand what's going on in a community. And I always make sure I, re I reach out to like a local development or the chamber or the local churches so I understand, you know, what's important in this community, what are people hungry for, what are, what, what's failing and what's prospering. And that's sort of how you understand um, what's going on. I think the most important thing to do as a journalist is to listen. Just listen to what people are telling you. I understood that the Republicans are having a populist um, new coalition forming, but I also have written extensively about how the Democrats will also have a uh, populist coalition forming. That party is changing as well, and I still don't think we're listening to it in, 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 a, in a meaningful way in understanding what's happening to, to the Democratic Party. Uh, James, can you talk about the perspective you bring to your stories. That's one of the, the criticisms that, another criticism that journalism, journalists have is that you come at these stories from a conservative perspective. Do you feel like those voices are being heard or like Selena's saying that that's another problem? I think yeah. that the, the criticism of an agenda is irrelevant. I mean, ultimately what matters is what the person is saying and truth is paramount. And when it comes to the purity of journalism and the closest thing to journalism is is we use videotape, it's videotaped evidence. It's the irrefutability of what we do that people don't like. It doesn't leave room for interpretation. Video Images transfix in a way that words don't. You can hear the intonation, you can hear the cadence. There's no disagreement. And I think it is the irrefutability of what we do that upsets people. If you look at the history of journalism, Upton Sinclair, if you read his biography, he was an avowed socialist, more power to him. If you look at undercover people, there have been people who've done this, they stopped doing it in the last 25 years. If you look at people, there's a reporter named Gunter Wolruf, and he actually infiltrated a German newspaper by being a reporter. And he had an agenda. His agenda was workers' rights so that the workers could strike. I don't hold, I don't think motive and agenda and political philosophy is relevant. I don't think that should be part of the calculation. The only thing that matters is what it is that you are reporting and whether or not it's true. All this discussion about ethics is, is, is Besides the point, because it really the, the discussion about the ethics is a subjective one, because it, what matters is what constitutes a compelling public interest, and that's what this is really about. It's so? about what com what constitutes yeah. that interest. But but if if you're doing if you if you have integrity, if there's no difference between how you project yourself to the world and what you say, you shouldn't be worried about people like me. If people were, were, had integrity, they shouldn't be paranoid. Can you so address the one issue, the veracity that you just talked about? Some people say, well, but he's selective in the way he cuts the videos, the way he shows the videos. Address that. Selective editing. All journalism is edited selectively so. Newspaper people select their words and they arrange them in sentences to paint an elaborate portrait. But we have, we, I mean, you talk about gutter standards. There's a quote in the Washington Post where I read, quote, there is no evidence that he did not say the things attributed to him, unquote, in the Wolf book. How are you supposed to disprove a negative? James, I want to... Selena's on the panel too. Talk, talk about voice because uh, that's one of the things that I know you have over the years gone from being a reporter at times to being a columnist at times. 
Um, for the public, you know, reporters deal in facts, where columnists sometimes can bring in their own opinion to it. So how do you distinguish between those multiple voices when you're talking? So when I, um, when I first started at the, at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, I, I sat at my desk and I wrote opinion pieces. And I was pretty bored by three months. I was like, who cares what I think? Um, so uh, I, I thought that a more interesting way to look at it, it was to go out and interview people and, and tell the story with both sides uh, as to what is going on. And if you look at any of my work on the, at the New York Post or um, at the Washington Examiner, there's always both sides to the piece. Uh, so that I, I want people to figure it out themselves. And, and so that's sort of what I evolved to over in the past 15 years. Right. So my, my pieces aren't, don't have my opinion in them, but they will have your opinion in them. And then people can figure out, well, what does that mean to me in my life? And what does that mean in, to, in terms of how I view things? Yeah. James, when you do your pieces, do you feel like your opinion comes through? Is that, no. How much does it motivate that? It doesn't. No. Okay. It doesn't come through. What, how about in choosing your targets, though? Because okay, you, we, we go after the sacred cows, the groups that the media refuses to investigate. I mean, but only on, I mean, from a conservative perspective. Well, you could right. say that a lot, of, a lot of media outlets are entirely monolithic in who they go after. And, and if, if that's their standard, then I guess then we ought to be investigating more and more organizations. But my view can't come through. It's the purest form of journalism to capture someone in their own words. But, but to answer your question, my opinion is completely irrelevant. What matters is what is being exposed. And if it's real, that's all that matters. More power to the people who have agendas, as long as they're reporting the facts. Right. And it's real, and, and that's why we call it Veritas, a cinema verite. Selena, can you talk about your, and it's, this all feels very jammed up because we don't have a ton of time, but I don't want to let this, uh, this panel go without giving you a chance to talk about the work you're doing at Harvard now because it's, it's an innovative way of interacting with, are they even journalism students that you're teaching? Or are there are a variety of different students. So I do this really cool thing at Harvard University. It's called the Main Street Project. They had come to me last year and asked me to, um, to be a visiting fellow. And I was like, Selena Zito in Cambridge, I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, so I politely declined. And then they came back and they said, well, we really want to do something with you. And I said, well, I could take the students out with me. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, why don't I take the students out with me? Uh, these are the best and the brightest in the country. And so why don't they do better than the past two generations have done and get out of the bubble? Most of my students were from uh, Boston or Manhattan or Los Angeles and had never been to the middle of the country. Uh, so they're like, yeah, let's do this. The kids had to compete to be into the, into the class. There were 30 that were accepted. No planes, no, um, no interstates. They only did back roads, which was very challenging in the winter. Um, but, you know, they lived in places like Youngstown, Ohio. They worked in a steel mill. They worked at the Fiesta Wear factory. They went to church here in Pittsburgh um, before they left. Um, you know, they, they went on calls with the police and they saw um, the opioid addiction front and center. They saw um, the administration of Zarkhan. They also went to the gun range. They went they w with an NRA instructor. Um, they learned um, about firearm safety. I'm sorry to cut you off. We're, we are running oh, out of time. So yes. I, yeah, I still have time left, though. Um, 46 seconds. Selena, I want to give you a this chance. This is my third first um, uh, amendment conference to speak at this year. Uh, one in Memphis, one in uh, Factoryville, Pennsylvania. I write about uh, the first amendment every year. I write about Constitution Day every year. I think it's really important, and I'm really excited to be here. 
So I think there's one thing we can all agree on. This panel was way too short. Couldn't have gone much longer. But thank you for joining us. Thank you. This conversation was presented by Duquesne University and the Pittsburgh Foundation in partnership with the National Constitution Center. This episode was edited by Jackie McDermott and David Stotts and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. Tune in to hear part five of 1A USA on July 2nd. And if you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.